Guys, um, one of the things that we've talked about in the past are people who you have, uh, who've had a great influence on your photography. Um, and, you know, um, with me, it was my aunt. My aunt was really the, the pretty much number one um, enabler of my early photography. She bought me my first camera and uh and my second camera because my first camera had a bunch of light leaks and she thought oh well now that's a bunch of trash um so the you know i she has been a, a huge influence on me and then um i had a teacher in middle school who in the late 70s uh exposed me to um you know the the my first exposure of large format he had a press camera and um, and we shot paper negatives in his press camera when I was in middle school. So those those are two people who are huge in my uh, photographic, um, you know, uh, my photographic life. My my uh, they're they're my photographic mentors, the early ones. But I want you guys and I and I know, Nick, um, you know, uh, your father, you um, uh, you know, got you in, you know, gave you your first camera and all that type of stuff. And, and Ethan, I think your mother bought you in a larger, um, you know, after, after you broke your leg. So I, and we've talked about those people in the past, but I want to take a step back. I want to take a, or a, a one degree back. And I want to, I, I want to hear about the people who are really positive about photography in your life and that could be either people who just said here hey here's a camera you know go out and shoot it or people who helped you refine your photographic vision or um you know people who are positive as opposed to all those people who are negative um to you about photography uh-huh. and uh, you know people who've given you guys a leg up and i've kind of rambled on a little bit hoping that i'll give you enough time to think about it but uh nick let's go with you first um who who would that be or it can be a series of people as well yeah i think i would say a series of people that the thing that i i keep coming back to is not so much uh you know technical stuff which i love but subject matter and how you present actual images and the thing that really drives what I am most interested in in photography <clears throat> goes back to being in school and studying anthropology and history and, and natural history, you know, biology, because the, the kind of the whole job of trying to convey something uh, that has to do with culture and society, you know, using culture and society. And so they're, they're, that's a problematic, but also really wonderful and rich kind of source of of uh, energy and information that goes into work because, you know, no matter what, when you push the shutter button, you're editing a tiny piece out of what's going on in the world and you're telling other people, well, this is what's significant and this point of view is significant and the way I frame this is significant. So you're, you're, you're putting a bunch of yourself in this as a filter in between whatever was going on and what people are going to see later and kind of understanding how that works and, and you know where you're you're warping reality and where you're not um, in terms of conveying information about people and about living things and about the world. That problem, solving it, understanding it, 
you know, failing to solve it. That's what really interests me most. Uh, and that goes back to history and philosophy and stuff like that, rather than art per se. Of course, it, that's a, also an artificial line. But when I say art, what I mean is technique. The artisan, you know, is somebody who's making stuff using tools and processes. But what I'm really talking about here is the, um, the ideas that come out of the work or that go into it or that, you know, die a thousand deaths in it or whatever, <laughs> that part of it. Sure, sure. Uh, Ethan, what about you? Um, is there somebody or or a way of thinking or anything that you found uh, to be hugely positively um, important to you? Uh, yeah. So when you asked that question, it, it just sort of brought me back like to a, a little trip down memory lane of, of all the people I really appreciate who, you know, pushed me forward Um you know, I, I I can think of like four or five people that that really changed the course of my life by being interested in photography and, and teaching me something that changed everything and, and really has a lot to do with what I do professionally now. Um, the first one is like my dad is a crazy person, but but also a great hobbyist engineer. Um, when we were little, we were little. <laughs> when I was little, um, you know, we started building like Star Trek models, and then that moved to model rockets, which moved to model airplanes. And he was the type of guy, you know, like my mom always interacted with me, like um, kind of watching herself uh, and using herself as like an avatar in interacting with me and thinking about, you know, how she wanted me to turn out and then how does she need to um, interact with me to manipulate me into the person she wanted me to be. It was very <laughs> sort of cerebral, and I hated it, right, because... I was right. smart enough at 10 or 5 to see that it was going on. I was like, oh, you're not dealing with me like a human. My dad uh -huh. had none of this. And it wasn't on purpose. He just didn't have that sort of, um, you know, ma manipulative thinking. Uh, he just, sure. uh, you know, just interacted with me as his best friend. And so when we made, like, model airplanes, it was not necessarily because he thought, you know, I can teach my kid some engineering skills. He was just curious about about model airplanes and wanted to build them himself. And so turned my bedroom into a workshop with a 12 foot table. And we used to cure epoxy overnight when I was sleeping. And <laughs> uh -huh. eventually, you know, he had been into photography in the seventies and eventually, um, a friend of a friend was cleaning out an attic and had some dark room gear. Um, and I said, dad, can I, can I keep it here? He said, no, I said, it's broken. You know, maybe I can, fix it or I'll just sell it on eBay. He said, fine. And then I had it in the house and I fixed it. I said, Hey dad, can I just put this in the bathroom? He was like, Oh, it's going to stink up the house, you know? And then, um, I wheedled him until he said, okay, but you have to clean it up. And then once I was printing in the bathroom, he like cleared out the basement and, uh, made a dark room down there. And then he got us into printing in color and like, you just couldn't stop him. He also has sort of that obsessive, uh, thing that I do where you get down one rabbit hole and, and you just like go figure it out. And it was really great to right. have, you know, an intelligent adult to investigate something with instead of uh, learn from, you know, he didn't know anything that I didn't know. Um, but we figured it out together. And also sure. he just had a lot more money than I did when I was 14 years old. <laughs> so uh, he could buy things like broken Jobos and we could put them back together. Um, 
So I, re- I really appreciate that. You know, he always wanted me to be a doctor so I could be rich, um, but kind of made me an engineer uh, without uh, without meaning to. Um, the other well, is isn't a doctor just a sort of meat engineer anyway? A meat engineer, yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I, I'm still squeamish about it. Um, I can think of a couple other people. Um, there was this photo teacher in high school, Mr. Gordon, who was really great. He used to drink a lot, and like um, w- we were friends. He let us use the dark room after school, uh, you know, sort of unsupervised. And I had some friends who figured out how to um, use their student ID to get into his uh, <laughs> his supply closet where he kept handles of vodka. And so I actually <laughs> made a bunch of friends who you know, at like 15, we're there to drink. Uh, and I was there to print photos and we, we would hang out and we're still friends today. And that was kind of a funny thing. But Mr. Gordon was great. He had like some large format um, camera equipment and he let us shoot uh, paper negatives and things on it. And that, that sort of exposed me to that. He let me take over the entire classroom once for a week to build a giant developing bath system out of two by fours and um, a tarp and we made some eight by 10 foot enlargements from some four by fives. And that really stuck with me. And, and it was sort of going out of his way. Um, he really, you know, he was close to retirement at that time. He must've been like in his seventies and like kind of drank all day and, uh, hung out with the kids. I remember like being in photo class and he and my friend Chuck spent the entire period, uh, putting rubber cement on their skin and making fake scars. Like he was just hanging out and, and it, I really sure. appreciate that. It was like a very relaxing time, but in hanging out and, you know, uh, drinking and smoking and, and like swilling Robitussin in the middle of his class, like he really, he managed to teach us a lot and get us very passionate about that. And so I really appreciate that. The yeah, other- I, I did. Oh, oh, I was going to say, I had a teacher kind of like that. Um, he wasn't a photography teacher. He he taught uh, history and he taught a class called American Wars. And he was a, um, a World War II Pacific theater veteran. And all he would do is just go out and tell, uh, I mean, he would come in and he would tell war stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we spent, you know, like three weeks going from the Revolutionary War up to World War II. And then the rest of the semester was World War II and we wouldn't get, you know, he would say, oh yeah, there was Korea, you know? Um, And, you know, he would, he would tell these war stories, but there was always, uh, you know, this was late seventies when, you know, it might've even been uh, 1980 then, Um, but it was, um, it was, you know, 79, 80, right in there. And one of the things that he always managed to tell us about once a month or so was, um, you know, if a, if a war comes up while you're um, of draftable age, um, uh, find a way not to go. Um, and he was and he, you know, and, and he was, you know, one of those greatest generation uh, in in air quotes kind of people. And uh, and he had a lot of influence on me for for the way of thinking about how we ask people to do things um uh and how we manipulate talk about you said manipulation uh um how to manipulate people into into doing things that they otherwise wouldn't 
um, and and making it right and good in their brains. And mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, uh, sorry. And you were about to go off on somebody else or uh, talk uh, yeah, about somebody. I, I had a couple others. It, your story made me think of how my grandfather really loved World War II. He's a World War II photographer and actually started a studio. But uh, when he, he died of Alzheimer's, but when he started losing it, he kind of went back to World War II. He was in the Navy, and I think it was the best time in his life because it was the first time he could eat all he wanted. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you know, no. Kind of depression era. And yeah. he also spent a lot of time on a on an aircraft carrier, so I think it was yeah. pretty plush. But um, yeah, so there, there's a couple other people that, that, you know, while we're on it, I'd like to thank, you know. Um, my friend Josh Schaffner, who's... Um, he now uh, runs a like a, a co-packing facility. He runs a lot of uh, canning equipment. Who actually got me into building brewery equipment and fixing brewery equipment as well. But when we were about thirteen or fourteen, he showed me how to develop film for the first time in the in the school darkroom, and um, I owe him like an incredible debt of gratitude for you know what he did for me in half an hour. Right, it, that that's kind of where it all. Uh, began and so we've been lifetime friends he annoys me to no end often and I get so mad at him uh, over all sorts of things but you know like I uh, I owe him so much of my life for just showing me that one thing uh, graciously for half an hour and I will will always be friends because of it Um, the other person like that is my buddy Jeff Orlowski who I haven't seen in years but um, he was the high school newspaper editor, um, and he just said to me one day, "Hey, you should uh, you should take pictures for the high school newspaper," and um, that kind of changed my life as well. It got me really interested in photojournalism when I was young. Not that I'm a good photojournalist, but it I don't know, kind of messed me up in in college. I kind of wanted to do that and not major in physics, and it was a real Mm -hmm. dilemma for me, uh, which worked itself out with me not having any interest in certain things and just bombing out. But that's another story. But, you know, Jeff um, changed the course of my life by saying, hey, you should apply to do this. Um, And then, you know, Jeff went on to become, like, this amazing videographer. He made um, these two documentaries, Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral. I believe at least one of them is on Netflix right now. Uh, he's you know been all over the world shooting videos in uh, waterproof cases, either underwater or on glaciers. And um, yeah, I feel really lucky to have known him and uh, grown up with him. And then the last person that I'd like to thank is, uh, do you guys know Philip Greenspun? Uh, I think he made Photo.net. Mm, no. And this kind of like rolls in thinking everybody is, I don't know Philip personally, but, you know, in 1998, when I started getting into photography, photo.net was the place. There was no like Petapixel or DP Review or uh, there was no 35MMC or Emulsive. It was just photo.net, right? And it, it wasn't like retro analog stuff. It was just, that was the technology of the day. And it was these message boards where people asked questions and I asked you know, stupid questions till three in the morning when I should have been studying for high school and just read and read and read and devoured, you know, um, photos from people all over the world and uh, descriptions and technical things. And um, that was kind of how you found things out before YouTube, but after the internet was a thing. And I, I really appreciate that site. I know it's, it's not nearly as popular now as it once was in terms of like market share, but 
Um, Photo.net, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who remember when that was like the major resource for technical information. So, yeah, yeah. it was nice to think I, about those for a minute. Yeah, I haven't been there. I'm uh, I'm there now. I've uh, For some reason, I might have, uh, you know, done Google searches that have ended up at Photo.net sure. forums. Um, but I don't think I've ever gone there uh, directly. Um, so... So yeah, yeah um, you weren't really doing okay. it in 1998, right? That was kind of your off period. Yeah, uh, and and that actually um, that that that's a good intro to to who I want to talk about, um, and that is and, and it, it's kind of my experience also is that um, from the time okay um i'm gonna give you some some dates and times of my photographic uh life um uh, i took um i've most of in uh most of a bachelor degree minor in photography but i had to take one more class in order for it to actually be a minor and um and that would be, um, you know, wouldn't be offered for six months and, you know, yada, you know, so I didn't end up taking it. And I, you know, I think back to, um, I, you know, I had a great enthusiasm for photography then, but I don't remember in that entire time that I spent at the in the darkroom at University of Minnesota, um, where I, I, I finally remember my time there. But I don't don't remember anybody ever really encouraging me, Um, you know, like I I always felt like I was, you know, maybe uh, the third or fourth rate um, uh, student in the group. And, um, you know, I mean, I was doing a lot of stuff that didn't satisfy me uh, artistically and photographically. And part of the deal was I was also at that point. Um, under the misapprehension that if I got medium format, that would solve all of my problems. And then, you know, and I couldn't afford medium format. And I had that so, idea, which led me to all the Kiev cameras that are broken around my shop even today. <laughs> right. <laughs> that yeah, remind, yeah. reminds me of a friend who's, who said he thought his life was going to turn around when he got a motorcycle. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It up really like his bones ached and he was freezing cold and really wet. Right. Yeah. And everything goes numb down there after a while. Um, uh, That's the other part of a motorcycle. I rode motorcycles for years. Um, But but the um, uh, in fact, actually, my first motorcycles were when I was at the dark room at the University of Minnesota. I can remember parking it there. Um, But uh, um the uh i remember you know like i remember having a conversation with somebody from a higher class i don't think he was a graduate student but somebody who had gone a little bit further in photography and you know was talking down to the new kid and um you know i said some you know the kid he was or the the guy was asking me um so what camera do you have and i was saying okay i have a minolta x370 and, um, you know, I, I've a 50 millimeter lens, which is, you know, a normal lens and which is something I had just learned in like the class, two classes, you know, before this, uh, you know, or two, two weeks before this. And he says, no, no, 
50 millimeters is not normal. 45 is normal, you know, and it was just like, you know, I just made me feel like a dumbass, you know, even though I have that the same opinion that the guy had. But this guy just made me feel like a dumbass um, and or maybe I just felt like a dumbass and he was he was the trigger as opposed to the cause. Um, but um, it, it Part of the deal was I, I spent a lot of time not having enough money to pursue photography. Um, and when I did have enough money, it was into the digital age and I went down the DSLR route. And once again, I needed more megapixels, um, you know, and I needed uh, less shutter lag and I needed, you know, I mean, I, and I, uh, I needed all that stuff. And uh, when I got back into film photography and I discovered the uh, Film Photography Project podcast, um, I, I want to thank um, Leslie Lazenby um, because Leslie talked to – she has a way of presenting basic information to you in a way that's like – we understand that you don't have this information. Here's the information. And this will help you as opposed yeah, Leslie to Leslie is the world's best old school camera salesman. She oh. is the, like the guy in the oh, fedora yeah. that I would expect to meet in 1957 uh, walking into a camera store. It's amazing. Yes. Yes. Except for the fact that it's not like, oh, you don't need that. You need this. You know, this is the pro bundle. It's got pro written on it. She's the one she is at at this point, you know, she talked a bit about, um, you know, um, wherever it is in Ohio. I can't remember the name of the town. Finlay. Um, Finlay. Finlay. Finlay, Ohio, where she has the had the students come in and she would give them a camera and just don't sell it on eBay. If you don't like it, you know, bring it back here. That person is a wonderful person. And, you know, um, I, I remembered a lot of my developing and she one day talked about using Extol and, and I've been using Extol as a one shot. And so I've been going through a lot of it. Right. And, and she said, you know, okay, so some developers are, you use just once and those are the ones that you, you know, and then there are other developers that you dump back and you can continually reuse and reuse. Those are stock. And I went, oh, she saved me money. You know, she saved me sanity. And so I, I got to say, um, thank you very much, um, Leslie. And I'm sure she doesn't listen to the show, but um, I want to say that. And then um, uh, I want to also, this really was not my original goal on this, but I, I want to talk about uh, Nick Lyle. Do you guys know Nick Lyle? He helped me out a lot with a bunch of early uh, camera builds um, and didn't make me feel like an idiot. He helped me. Um, Damn, you know, I screwed up. <laughs> Explain to me a whole bunch of stuff. And then Ethan Moses is another guy uh, who helped me uh, learn that 3D printer and um, uh, and other building and, and philosophy. So I want to thank you guys. Um, and it really, that wasn't my, my original goal of asking that question. My original goal was I was thinking about my aunt and all the things that she has done for me photographically. She's the, she's like the world's worst enabler 
Um, and I am the world's worst enabler for her as well. You know, like we'll both be talking about cameras and I'll say you should get that. And then that like gives her permission to buy it, even though she may not have the money for that. And the same way around, you know, and we've swapped cameras a bunch, you know. Um, so um, she's uh, she has in my life been very much of, uh, you know, a guardian angel in a lot of ways. Um, and so, of course, I thank my aunt. So uh, so anyway, um uh do, do you guys have any anything more to say on that any uh, yeah uh, i do actually um i, yeah. I but long before you turned this around as you just did and talked about uh people that are not so you know not so much like teachers and mentors and i have way too many of them to list but brought it back to friends and family because one of the people who had a very big influence on me was my uh, sister katie who studied photography in school but really just was a natural, uh, brilliant photographer. And what she did that really appealed to me, and this is way, way back when, you know, we were in our 20s, she was taking photographs that were really journalistic photos, but always were art at the same time. And she was able to do it in a way where one thing didn't interfere with the other, you know, that you saw a photo that was really, you really felt like, yeah, those are the real people and I'm in the room with them. But damn, it's beautiful picture too, you know. That's, that's <laughs> she had that skill, really and I and I'm still trying to you know catch up to what she what she was doing back then. Yeah. Yeah. Is she an older sister, or your sister's older? No, I'm the oldest, but we're really close okay. in age, you know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what do you guys say? You want to start the home? Oh, before I sit, before we start the homemade camera podcast, let's uh, just say. Uh, folks, um, take some time and thank those people. Um, they're really important. And it, it could be anywhere along the line. It doesn't have to be photography. Um, it can be people who, um, you know, uh, have a really good eye and, and are able to challenge you. Um, or also, you know, uh, people who just encourage you. Uh, one of, I, I was very lucky. I grew up with parents who were, who uh, at least as far as I know, maybe they were manipulative like your mother, uh, Ethan. But uh, as far as I know, never had like those plans for me that they felt like they had to push me towards. Um, but when I developed directions, they were always there to support. And far too few people in the world have that. So I, I'm very lucky uh, from that point of view. So when you get a chance... Um, uh, you know, thank your people. Thank thank your mentors. Um, and um, what do you say we start the Homemade Camera Podcast? No, I can't. I got to go write some thank you letters. Okay, um, a, a couple of shows ago uh, when we had the Danger Boys on, uh, we talked a little bit about the concept of how many shots in a unit of shots. So like how many shots per roll were, were worth sharing with others. Um, there, there's an old adage that if you get three shots from a 36 exposure roll, you're doing really well. 
Um, and which means that you're you're hitting at a 10% success rate uh, on 35 millimeter. Uh, but I I found um, you know specifically when I really started uh, concentrating on what I was shooting um, uh, maybe I don't know six or seven years ago um, when I really took the time to look at stuff before I shot it as opposed to I, and this is once again when I came back to film versus when I was shooting in um, digital. I, I was under the the spray and pray type of um, uh, concept for for shooting digital, and the the concept with spray and pray, of course, is you just keep the the you know keep clicking away, and one of those surely has to be good. Um, you know, forget the fact that. Uh, you know, you could actually make the decision on when the shutter's being, uh, uh, you know, when the shutter fires. So it, it led me to thinking a couple of things. So one of them, and this was one of the things that that, that we talked about with uh, um, Dave and Simon, uh, was the idea that if you are taking that 36 exposure roll, then going into the darkroom and printing quality prints from that 36 exposure roll three from uh that 36 exposure roll you know that's a day's work right um and you could certainly go back and maybe print some more but you're you know three good photographs in darkroom is a day's work um and so maybe that was the limiter at the time was how many we could print versus how many we could, uh, you know, scan and adjust in Photoshop and throw out on Instagram. You know, I mean, it, it's a five minute time frame versus a two hour time frame to, you know, often get a really good print. Um, so so I, my my question is, how do we how do we um, make those decisions on what's a good shot? What's a shareable shot? What's a printable shot? Even if I now go and print them and I work on a hybrid, um, you know, analog, digital analog workflow where I send it off to be printed by somebody else, that can still be maybe seven minutes as opposed to five minutes of work time versus two hours of work time to get in, you know, something on an eight by 10 sheet of black and white paper. Um, and part of, part of the, you know, the thought process is if I buy 25 sheets of four by five film and I, I better get more than three frames out of that 25 sheets because that's, a significant financial outlay. And, and I find that then that makes me second guess my shots because of the, because of the money involved. Um, I'm much more willing to look through, do all of my focusing, do all my framing, set everything up and then not take a picture when I've got four by five Versus if I put the I'm very rarely do I put my camera, uh, you know, a 35 millimeter camera to my eye and not shoot. Sometimes I do. 
Um, so I wanted to I wanted to talk with you guys about that. I wanted to talk with you guys about the whole idea of what is what are the factors that go into a success rate? Um, what are the factors that go into um, the idea of uh, of getting work that we're happy with enough to show it to others? How about that as a standard? Um, versus the pictures that we're going to look at and then never look at again. Um, so do you guys have any thoughts on that? Anything? Um, I do immediately have a response, which is that yeah. you're talking about um, really important things like how much money and effort go into the image. And then you're talking about an output, which is good enough to show to others. But there's another level that you could think about, which is, you know, you want to create a photo that is going to get, you know, published in National Geographic or, you know, that you can sell a thousand posters or that will, you know, will go in on the cover of a book. Or if you raise the stakes, um, then uh -huh. the investment looks, you know, maybe like worth pushing a little harder. So there's a whole other uh, scale you could shoot for other than just being willing to show the photograph, you know, to or post on Instagram or whatever. There, there could be. Um, the goal of making something that really has legs, um, and that's a okay. that's that's a much harder bar to get over, um, but it's worth maybe spending a little more to get there. And and part of the deal with that is that uh, I've always said that one of the reasons why photography is the least respected of the arts is because everybody's grandmother, who is not a photographer who spent their life as a homemaker or something. Um, and I don't mean to denigrate homemakers. I mean to just put them far away from the artistic world, uh, even though many homemakers are solidly in it. That's, you know, anyway. Um, put in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So everybody, everybody who has had a camera in their lives has taken one photo that's worth, blowing up and putting over the couch um uh, you know um but that's not enough the, for the my life for my life uh, my life goals like that one photo over the couch isn't right. gonna cut it <laughs> right but, but yeah no i'm with you on that so, so you what you're saying is what you're saying is that people uh, people sell photography short because of the imaginary idea that if you randomly take enough pictures it's like the chimpanzees you know with a hundred typewriters right actually are going to write Shakespeare. Um, that's just not an efficient way to make a good product. Or, or, the, or the gorilla who paints. You know, the whole idea of uh, uh, a gorilla. Now, the gorilla is ahead, ahead of the typing chimps, I think. Right. Well, okay. So so the, the idea is that if you open the shutter enough, you're going to capture lightning in a bottle a, a few times in your life. The question is how many times and at what standard and that type of thing, um, you know, is reasonable for a photographer to think of, um, you know, um, nice to be more efficient than to just fire away, you know, waiting for that event to happen. So then the question, then the question is, are you a hunter who just is going to roam out, you know, pace the cross the savannah ceaselessly looking for your prey? Or are you going to take some extra time 
to create a situation which raises the odds of you're getting a good image by you know yeah. choosing where to go more carefully or or maybe curating the you know the, what goes into the picture or whatever yeah right uh, well i mean it, i i i think uh, you know that's that's one way to work um uh but i i think that this is something that's valid for any type of photography it could be studio photography it could be portrait photography it yep. could be landscape it could be street it could be you know underwater um you know it's whatever you do um and i'm talking street. about <laughs> what was that underwater underwater street that's a subgenre that i would sounds really appealing uh-huh okay <laughs> I don't really I like, you know, know what to do with that. Camera and I don't know somewhere like Miami, you know, beachfront or yeah. Well, or you could do the you know the Seattle uh, underground you know below street level tour, right? I've never actually That's been there. That's <laughs> under That's under the uh, uh, yeah. Uh, when I was there, I didn't do it either. But um, uh, so um. A, a couple of things come to mind um, about um, about the 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 slower is better concept. Um, you know, it, it, the four by five slows you down, um, and uh, you know, film slows you down. Medium format slows you some. Four by five slows you further. Eight by ten slows you more. Uh, what are you working on? Uh, Ethan, a 20 by 24, that slows you even more. Um, if you're going to be doing, uh, um, uh, you know, some uh, panoramic views from a skyscraper, that slows you down even more. Um, does that make for, a, does slow equal higher quality? Well, if it doesn't, then you're really penalizing yourself. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Ethan, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I kind of feel like we could outside. go Everything. around. What? Sorry. I was going to say, I think this is outside of your your uh, love of photography aspect. But uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like we could go around all day in circles on this. It's like is slower, better or faster, better. Like good pictures are better if you shoot something interesting. You know, uh, they're better. When I'm in New York, there's interesting things all around me. I shoot a lot of pictures. When I'm in Albuquerque, you know, how many pictures am I going to take of my 3D printers? It's kind of like what you're... Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's so many variables. Yeah. I don't really worry about slow or fast. I have so much film now. I'm not, like, worried about the cost. I'm just worried about, like, the amount of time that I can spend shooting. I, I would like to spend more time shooting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just I mean, look for something interesting, man. <laughs> I think there's I think there's a there's a, a version of Lincoln's thing of or maybe maybe yeah I think it was Lincoln who said you know how tall should a person be and just tall enough so their feet hit the ground you know it's the same idea so uh -huh. you might in order to shoot a really a successful high speed burst of some activity it still might pay to spend a couple of days preparing you know so the slow fast thing is it it. It's completely it can, depends on context. Okay. I feel like I feel like taking this conversation seriously is sort of a manifestation of just like other ways to justify different types of gear fetishism. <laughs> I think like what, what and uh -huh. and okay, we are the the most gear fetishy podcast of 
all time, except for that Perry G in his Leica lenses. But, right. you know, uh, <laughs> like, Double I mean, we, we're ostensibly here to talk about, like, <laughs> gear and making gear. But, like, when it, I don't know, when it comes to making no, pictures. No, this, 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 the, the question he's raising, obviously, is a canard. Like, who cares? Slow, fast, yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, you should have something good in front of you, all of that. But it does sort of affect the, the, the you know, the, the core topic because, you know, you could, for instance, make a camera that was easy to use and fast to shoot and, and took a really big, large format negative. I don't know. It's like a maybe like the Camera Dactyl OG, you know. So there's a camera that sort of manages to be to, to slow you down a bit, but still you can use it fast when you need to. So, you know, it, it's yeah, I guess mixed, it it's mixing, mixing it up different ways um, and you can sort of set yourself up for. Uh, a way of working based on you know the tool that you designed for the, sure. for the purpose. Yeah. Okay, so l- let me let me talk a little bit about why I'm talking about this. I was um, uh, I've been out um, shooting the the Kraken six by twelve camera almost exclusively for the last I don't know three two and a half three months, um, and. Uh, I, I've, I've been thinking about also the fact, you know, um, I have not been shooting my four by five. Um, all my, uh, 35 millimeter cameras are in the cabinet. Um, but I, I've been thinking about the whole idea of how to bring the quality eye of the four by five slow, good shots how to how to bring that eye over to um my other photography I feel and like it's, it's it's a simple thing right like if if you see something interesting push the button if not yeah don't you take nice well, pictures i don't feel quite the same <laughs> way i think there's two there's two things you can do when you see something interesting you can just push the button which happens all the time uh-huh. or you can you know move around and try different things and, and really oh, ask yourself, do I ever want to see this image again? Like when this shows up in my, on my roll of film, am I going <laughs> to be happy that I see it there? You can give yourself a little time to either back off or improve what you're doing. Um, and that I think really pays. I think that little extra time shuffling around and questioning whether the shot's worth taking um, very often it results in an, a better image. It's not just that you don't waste uh-huh. film. It's that you maybe find the the better angle or the better uh, subject or whatever. Yeah, so the sun has returned to the northwest a little bit. A little bit of light has returned, and I'm starting to, I feel like my brain's thawing out and things are starting to happen. Yesterday, I went up and met for the first time. I met a large portion of a local camera uh, fanatic group called Camera Obscura. I don't know. I can't remember club or society or whatever it is, but they are a bunch of pinhole photographers in the the Pacific Northwest, um, spanning from somewhere down in Oregon up to, you know, the Canadian border, I'd say. And some people I already knew, like Lorraine Healy, who's a great photographer who does a lot of work with pinholes and Holga. Um, and she's very active on the, you know, various Facebook groups and so forth. So um, a lot of people know her work and 
Also Todd Schlemmer, who's well known for his 3D printed pinhole cameras. Uh, I, uh, he was there and finally got to meet him and a bunch of other people um, that I had never met before, Colby and Hank and Jana and some of their family members, I think. I don't really know. I just barely met these folks, but they were a whole lot of fun to meet with. And we didn't do much pinhole photography because we went to something called the Chicken Parade and it was pouring rain. So <laughs> the, the chickens were moving a little too fast for, you know, pinhole in the rain. But um, everyone, of course, turned out to have a, several other cameras in their pockets that uh, allowed us to use lenses to capture this event, which was really a kind of a strange Northwest local tradition in this very small town in an agricultural uh, rich uh, river valley area north of Seattle, a uh, town called Edison. Uh, at this one day every year, apparently everyone in town dresses up as a chicken and many of them carry chickens in their arms and form a large parade and hundreds of other people come to watch them go by. And that's it. That's the whole thing. It's a chicken parade. Um, perfect place to take pictures. Everybody there is an exhibitionist, so, you know, you don't have to worry about firing away with the camera. And it was a lot of fun. It was very enjoyable. So, I think the rain actually helped in a way. So did you end up taking any uh, pinhole photos? Not, no, I didn't, because it was it was would have been pointless. Um, oh, OK, it was just a mob of people. And it was dark and raining. And the camera I had, I would have required, a, you know, two, two, three minute exposures. I don't know. Maybe next time. Were, was 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 anybody taking pinhole uh, stuff there? Not not on the street. No, it was just it was okay. it was also really thronged. Like we were, you know, all jostling each other. And it was just like oh, being okay. in a pen with six hundred chickens. You know, only <laughs> and I was not a big chicken. I was a medium sized chicken, right? So <laughs> there were vehicles. I mean, it was it, yeah, uh-huh. it was. So, so did you get any time uh, to sit and talk with the people? Did uh, was anybody there? Uh, I mean, if if Todd yeah, so was there, then so we met for breakfast first, and then we met for lunch after. So we had plenty of time to talk and get to know each other a little bit. And most of the rest of this gang know each other very well. And I was kind of the newcomer there, so it was it right. was fun to get to know some of my uh, obsessive neighbors. So were, were any of the other ones there with homemade uh, pinholes or did you get to to do any of that uh, talking with them about that? Every all the cameras I saw were ready made. Um, but uh, one of the fellows is really into, you know, building and restoring older cameras. So I'm going to be already able to learn. He can answer a lot of questions for me. He's he has two working Kodak panorams. So. Uh-huh. Uh, he can help me restore mine. And, yeah, so there's plenty of that kind of knowledge. Uh, these I mean, it, these people were all right out of the same little, you know, pool of podcasts that we are all part of. Right. Are obsessed with every different kind of way of approaching photography. And, and uh, so there's a ton to learn from. them. Yeah. OK. OK, cool. So it was. Uh, are you going to go back? Or are you going to uh, hang out with them on a future? Um, uh, oh yeah, know, I don't know if it'll be a chicken part, chicken oh, parade, or whatever. Oh yeah, so they do these meetups every month or two. Um, so uh-huh. I'll certainly have more opportunities. Yeah, it'll be great. And and they often pick a, a quieter event so that you know pinhole is actually practical in the middle of the winter here. I mean, it's it's pretty 
iffy that you'll get a good day for it eat anyway because it, it's so often dark but right the light the light is coming and uh, cool yeah and then the other thing i wanted to talk about if it's not out of order is that um i've got a couple projects going the one that has me really kind of excited is uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to make a universal medium format system camera based on a baby speed graphic because I took a trip recently and I took along um, the Mia 645 and it, the old camera just it just quit on me and it just wouldn't feed the film and uh -huh. it pissed me off because I really like wanted to use it. It was the only medium format camera I brought with me and I like the lenses a lot. I like the size. So uh -huh. it got me annoyed and I started thinking, okay, how can I make a replacement for this so I can keep using these lenses? I'm tired of this. Um, all my medium format stuff has, you know, helicals and bellows. And it, so it's not set up for system lenses that are fixed, except for the Mamiya uh, press lenses. But this would be a way to use, I wanted a way to use the lenses that don't have shutters because there's lots of them around. They're cheap. They're lovely. Um, things like Mimia 645, Pentax 67, all those lenses made for cameras that had built-in shutters. So I just decided to try and find a, a baby speed graphic that would have a working shutter and was affordable. And for a long time I couldn't, but finally I found one that was missing a, a major part, which I didn't need. It had the ground glass part was gone and everything else worked. So I got that for a low price and, I'm actually going to saw the front of it off, take all the parts out to reuse for another camera, but cut it back close to where the shutter is. And it turns out that that gives you a short enough flange back distance to use any of the 645 lenses and, and longer. Hey. So the idea is I'll just put a flange on it and then I'll be able to bolt a lens board that is the right depth and has the right bayonet mount for a particular system. Uh, so just by changing those front pieces, I'll turn this, uh, you know, regular two by three graph lock shuttered camera into uh -huh. uh, a system camera for any of the major systems that had, um, you know, lenses that didn't have built in shutters. Uh, I think it'll be a really fun camera to use. And, uh, and I already tested the shutter. It's pretty accurate. works fine. It's going to, I think it's going to be great. Now, hey, Nick, now does can this... you send oh. can, real quick, can you send me the dimensions of your missing ground glass? Uh, I can, but the the thing that's missing is that whole spring back. I see, thing. I see. And actually, Never mind then. <laughs> and actually, I'm going to take that off because I've discovered that the newer RB6, uh, the RB67 backs that are the really nice newer ones that are, they're kind of squared off. They're, they're just the most precision, highest quality version. Well, it turns out that they are much more finicky. On They don't go on the Graflock backs that... Um, the older RB67s will go on any old Graflex camera that has the same size film back. But there are these little hooks for the special Graflex uh, ground glass that get in the way. And they're also the, the slots on these newer RB67 holders. The reason I got one is I wanted a 645 back. Um, they're thinner and shallower. And so a lot of the other, um, uh, you know, two by three Graflock backs, the sliding tabs are not precise enough to, to work with it. So it's, they're finicky. And, and I'm thinking of using, there's an RB67 revolving back that I have that is a separate item you can buy and they're around for very cheap. I'm thinking of making that be the back for the camera because it'll accept all of these newer film backs as well as the old ones. And it'll, it'll hey, allow to rotate 90 degrees if you're on a tripod. Well, guess what I have four of? 
I have four of those RB67 backs. So um, you mean it's just the revolving thing. portion. Yeah, I have one. So, oh, you have one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, one, so I, I was going to... I'm ready to I, go. And it does mean you can't use 6x9 if you switch to that. But for this camera, I think 6x7 and and square and 645 are going to be what I'm really mostly uh-huh. interested in anyway. Um, and a lot of those lenses cover, you know, they're not designed for movement, so they have fairly precise limited image circles. So um, there aren't as that many that would cover 6x9 anyway of the system. So, so what lenses are you going to run on this? What, what's your, what's your plan for the lens range? Or are you going to? Well, well, I have Mamiya six four five, um, several okay. sizes, and that's one of my very favorite, you know, sets of lenses. But, but so the wider ones aren't that great. So I would be looking for a wide angle Pentax um, lens eventually. But okay. I don't really need that right now because I've got that fifty millimeter Mamiya yeah. lens. That's fine for you, wide. Yeah. Do you know what your flange focal distance is on that? Um, I'm just think, trying to figure out how much of this box you have to oh, cut away. For, well, so for the Mamiya 645, I have the numbers written in a notebook, and they're not right on top of my head. But yeah. this would go – This can the box can be cut back con, considerably farther than it needs to be for Mamiya 645. The, the, graph, uh-huh. the, the baby graphic shutter is pretty short. It really doesn't take up a lot of uh, depth. So – you can probably, if you cut it all the way back, you could probably stick as wide as like a 45 millimeter, uh, you know, large format lens on there. Or, you know, certainly 50 or maybe 45 or even 43 possibly. I mean, it's very, uh-huh. it's quite short. So, um, but th- that's a whole other thing. What I'm interested in are these lenses that have a built-in helical and but no shutter. And they all mount the same distance from the film. So you, you just put a bayonet mount on a board and, and then just bolt that board on the front. Kiev lens time. Yeah, there's great Russian stuff. There's yeah. all kinds of lenses. And and you could even play around with some 35 millimeter lenses um, with a pano back or with, a you know, 35 millimeter lenses that are shift lenses. Um, you might be able to work with some of them, too. Uh, they have pretty big image circle, so. Depending on the flange distance, some of those might you might not be able to get infinity focus with because they may the 35 millimeter stuff might have to get a little too close, um, but it would still work for macro. So, you know. doesn't the Jupiter eight cover four by five? Would that be one of the no. ones that you're no, 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 no. you're looking at? The uh-huh. Jupiter eight will cover uh, almost six by six, and it would be okay. buried in the shutter because it's supposed to. It's yeah. only supposed to be like a few millimeters from the film. So. Yeah, like 21 millimeters away. Yeah. Okay, so this, I think, is a really good, interesting project, but I'm looking at the show notes here, and it says 8x10 build imminent, which, you know, maybe it's not the best uh, everyday walk-around camera, but I am dying to hear this. Okay, so that's starting to happen. Um, what, I, what I've decided on building is um, I, have a, I found uh, a front standard for a Cambo, and that was designed for 8x10. And what they do is they have the same uh, front standard for both 4x5 and 8x10. So all yeah. the lens boards and stuff, which I already have, fit on it. But it gives it a, a much bigger uh, range of rise and fall and so forth. And it just goes on one of those standard Cambo rails, which I also have. Um, but I don't want just a rail camera. What I want to do is build a wooden box that that takes the eight by 10 film holders, which I also have already. So I have to build a wooden box and then 
I'll simply have a quick way to clamp that rail to it and stick that front standard on so that basically you can collapse the bellows and stuff up into the box and close it up for transport and just pull off the rail. So it's a kind of a quick, a quick to break down rail camera with a simple fixed rear standard uh, that is also the box that carries it. So it's a, it's a nice compromise between a true field camera and a studio camera, and it'll be pretty lightweight as well. Well, what's missing is I need bellows. So, you know, that's basically built, building a box and, and getting hold of some bellows, and I've got I've got the camera. So I feel like I'm getting pretty close. Are and you I like, thinking about building bellows? I'm thinking about it. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's something that makes sense to me because they're pretty expensive, and uh-huh. I think learning on a big pair would almost be easier than learning on a teeny little pair. <laughs> Uh, for sure. There's some, there's some size that is the easiest to learn. I would highly recommend making some, uh, paper bellows before you go ruining 50 bucks worth of fabric from Joann's. But, um, yeah, I think they're, they're pretty easy to make if you have a little bit of time. Yeah. So that's a, that's a project that I'm trying to set for myself because everything else is pretty much together. And I think this is really the camera I want because it, it'll take a wide range of lenses up and these big lens boards that I already own will fit on it, you know, so there's a lot of stuff already out of the way that way. So. Yep. And All eventually, right. eventually the wheel, the wheelbarrow version will grow, but I need to start somewhere. And this, this is, seems like a pretty attainable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this oh, also um, part of the oh, thought with this, I just wanted to add one more thing. Part of the thought with this too, is that because it's got my own interface with a wooden box instead of, you know, the back end of it isn't a Cambo device. I can also make another version of this that uses the bellows as just the front end of a much bigger camera. So I could build a much bigger box and attach the same rail to it. If I want to project an even bigger image circle from a bigger lens, like the, uh, like that Nikkor uh, 610. So it's also can become the front end of an even bigger camera, which would be the wheelbarrow camera. Okie doke. So I understand you are also uh, assembling a different camera. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a crackpot from Florida <laughs> um, named Graham Young sent me this kit, <laughs> all the parts needed to make something called a Kraken. Um, and that's it's named after a, a mythical giant octopus, or maybe it isn't mythical, a giant octopus that has not been observed by science yet. Um, and I managed to assemble this camera, uh, and I really like the look of it. It's uh, it's a panoramic 6x12 that Graham's been talking about for the last few months and uh-huh. went together with surprising precision. Um in a certain amount of scraping and everything fit really, really well. I'm, I'm impressed by the fit and I have uh, a mine set up for a fairly long lens for a panoramic camera. It's a 135, and I partly just wanted to test myself because I'm used to using wide, you know, real wide angle lenses for panoramic shots. And I wanted to uh, try um, seeing what happens with a bit of a longer lens. And then of course we, I can always, uh, try and wheedle a shorter nose cone out of yeah. out of uh, gram for it eventually for a, uh, a wide angle version so wait what i thought you were running uh, a fuji uh lens on that right yeah it's now. a 135 5.6 oh it is fuji, no. okay yeah. okay so they're both they're both 135s you yeah. also have a 135 optar right right yeah, yeah. but I, so, I just decided to try the fancy lens first and uh, yeah 
Well, uh, one of the good things, um, one one of the reasons why I sent Nick um, one of the cameras uh, is, you know, first of all, I I thought that he should uh, should enjoy shooting it. But the other thing was uh, I needed somebody who was a guinea pig to with minimal instructions that I've presented on the on the web. Nick um, is a good guinea pig for this sort of yeah. thing. And also for like design notes and playing devil's advocate and frustrating you into making a better camera. <laughs> right. Yes. That's right. right. Uh, and and Gil Wheedler. Yeah. Yeah. Well and actually <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm pretty well surprised that um uh the the comments that he had had all been addressed already in later designs um and you see, it, you see it as surprising but i see it as more like yeah you sent me one of the first ones out of the gate <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> but well, gave part it of the, the deal and we should give it the, but it gave it a full test because this was one that you hadn't made all those improvements and it went together pretty easily so right yeah. so um the way all that came about was um i printed and sent nick a um uh, a camera with the idea that I had a set of notes of updates that I was going to do and, and modifications that I was going to do. And Nick said, Oh, great. Um, I'll build it when I get back home in two weeks. And I went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> okay. That is because, right. But it was the whole idea of, okay, well now you're, you know, now, so I just went ahead and made, made the changes as I saw them and pretty much Nick came along and, and, uh, and talked about those things. Um, and, um, and I've done, uh, you know, I've done another round, a second round of updates that are, are super minor. Um, but one of the things that Nick did was he used, okay, so this camera is plastic body, plastic cone that, um, lens cone, um, it has a receptacle to screw in, in a commercially available M65 to M65 helical. I think we and, need sound effects for this here. Yeah, right. <laughs> here, I can do it. Here, okay. Plastic body, plastic cone, and metal helical. Uh, that just sounded You need to hit the metal with a fork. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so uh, the so but part of the deal was he decided he was going to use a lens board other than the one that I supplied. The lens board that he um, chose was one that's available from RAF camera, which is a, a Soviet Soviet. Oh, my God. Uh, let's go back. <laughs> 20 well, years. they come from Moscow. Uh, let's just say that. Yeah. Yeah. A, a Russian. Um, I'm so used to referring to lenses as Soviet era lenses. Um, uh, but brand new parts from Moscow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're probably made in China, you know, uh, but there's a lens board that'll screw on to an M65 helical. The problem is that that ended up adding, what was it? Four millimeters to the length, five millimeters to the length. Well, I had, uh, I had known he was going to use this and we had talked a little bit about it and he had estimated two. So I sent him a slightly shorted, shorter um, nose cone so that it would fit. And then it ended up being about what? Right. And the problem two was that it's too long. 
Right. The problem is that I was, you know, 2000 miles away from the parts when we were talking about right. it on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, so the thing yeah. I'd like, ideally like a shorter nose cone, but I was able to use the funny lens board that um, Graham sent. That was the original design lens board. I was able to cut it down and fit it inside the mouth of the helical and squish it back just enough to basically hit infinity focus or close enough to it. So it's usable as is, um, but it would really be fun to use this with a screw on lens board, which apparently you've developed since this all happened. Yes. Um, because the screw on lens board, it gives you a much quicker way to change lenses. And even though this is a fixed focal length camera, I have more than one 135 lens and I might want to, you know, swap them between different cameras. So right. being able to unscrew that lens and just use it on a different camera is a big deal to me because I don't want to own, you know, three or four different versions of the same lens when I can avoid it. And uh, so that's a, an improvement. And, and then I also really would like to see a little more adjustment just built into the design of the camera. Um, and I know you have a way of, you've figured out, out, you know, nose cones that are only one millimeter different in length. And, and that's a certainly a, a practical way to address the issue. But I always want to see a couple of millimeters of adjustment. And it could be that you design them so that that screw on lens board on the front has a little bit more back and forth range um, to help dial in infinity focus and then, you know, maybe glue it when you get it exactly where it needs to be. Right. Well, one of the things the screw on lens board was to avoid the gluing, but um, but I'm sure that there are are methods. Of, oh, yeah. Um, so what I mean is that properly. Yeah. So you could make essentially a little threaded snout that you would glue that would make that final couple millimeters perfect. And then you unscrew mm -hmm. the lens from that. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's the idea is that there's just it means you have to make one more part. That's a problem. Right. I suppose, but. I like that, um, having a little bit of adjustment just built in. Because you know what I'm finding? This lens, for instance, is like four millimeters different flange focal distance than advertised, you know. <laughs> so even if you get the information from some reputable looking website, you can often be surprised. The real lens is not necessarily going to match. And I think a lot of times it's because the shutters aren't exactly the same. So this has a different shutter than the one, you know, on the lens on the website that gives you the flange focal distance. And that's right, all it right. takes to throw it off. Uh, the, you know, the optics might be the same, but if, right. if it's mount is different, then you're, you're off, you're out of, out of luck. <laughs> and, and part of the deal is that, um, uh, you know, a large format camera, four by five camera is essentially infinitely adjustable um, between right. its minimum and maximum. So they probably um, cheat a lot. <laughs> right. Right. So well, there's no reason. Like, oh, who cares if we put a different shutter on it? No one's going to matter. It's not going to matter because yeah. they have fellows on their camera. And then when you build right. a camera that's a fixed flange focal distance, you, you know, you're cursing them. Yeah. And and part of the deal and part of my solution um, to this this type of thing is um, I have uh, built uh, or I've designed and uh, created uh, digital files for nose cones that are one millimeter difference in different in length and they stretch from I believe the closest yeah the closest here is 58 millimeters and that's for Oh, no, sorry. 50, 58, yeah, 58 millimeters. And uh, was that, yeah, 58 millimeters is the closest I can get 
two. Uh, that's the shortest uh, flange focal distance I can get. So it goes in one millimeter increments from 58 millimeters to 180 millimeters. So you're pretty much any lens that you want to put on this up to um, a 180 is is going to work on this. And 180 is getting really long. That's that's going to look like a you yeah. know like like a deer's head or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to uh, completely change the balance of the camera and all that type of stuff. But it's but it's doable. So mm-hmm. uh, so so that uh, that did work out in the end. Have you been out to shoot it yet? I I have not taken it out yet because yesterday you I thought about it. it. I thought about it. It was, it was pouring rain and I just didn't no. want to I didn't want to put this lens through that. <laughs> OK, that re- that yeah. rain treatment. Oh man, you could have shown it off to everybody. And I that's see, true. I see that's how true. That's true. But there, there is still time for that. Okay. Well, actually, this that, would make a good pinhole camera too, wouldn't it? I have a no. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, I do not. I mean, it would be fine, right? It'd probably be better than most pinholes, but it's so good with a lens. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you know, I, I think a lot of the cool, the really cool pinhole panoramas all have a curved film plane um, because they don't have the lens fudging for them, you know, and that really helps with uh, getting the because the, the light fall off gets really extreme with a pinhole. I mean, okay. it's it's meant okay. to be yet. So hold on, Nick. Hold on. Hold on. Ethan, tell us about your six by twelve pinhole project that uh, this would encroach upon. No, I don't have one. No. Oh, okay, so I, that's just what I heard with that. No. <laughs> no, no, that so, wasn't me standing my ground. It's like you built this beautiful thing to do yeah. this really. I mean, I like pinhole pictures, but like uh, you have a lens for it. It's so good. <laughs> Why? <laughs> oh, sure. No, and in fact, I'm. I told Graham I'm not taking this lens off until I've shot some film because it's really on there right now, and I don't, you know. That's another reason I like the unscrewing lens board uh, style because you can you can take it the lens on and off without you know s- without structurally wearing down the the parts. Whereas if I had to unscrew the helical every time I wanted to get the lens off, eventually well, you know, I'd probably chew up the threads and. Yeah, you 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 do kind of chew up the threads. Um, the the body that I'm shooting right now, uh, I've swapped out the lens cone enough that I've. I pretty much stripped out um, that plastic, but fixing that strip out of plastic is just like you would. um, uh, So, so Nick, you have a piece of wood that uh, has a screw in it and you've stripped it out. So what do you do to fix that? Matchstick and white glue. Matchstick and white glue. Well, guess what? Uh, Same thing works with plastic. So all you do is you take a little piece of plastic and put it around the edge, and that reduces that diameter enough that they'll grip again. Yeah, sure. And, I, I get um, what you mean, but I, I yeah. still, I still like, um, I like metal on metal for the stuff I take on and off frequently. And you can, I mean, you could, you can, you could buy you know, female threads that would match your M65, and you could permanently glue them in, and you know, that's another solution. I mean, there's, there's a ton of ways to skin the cat, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, I could do press fits and all that type of stuff. But I think that it once you do that, 
with the whole idea of a, um, you know, if 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 this is going to be something that somebody's going to build themselves, then that those are more parts to um, to source, and there's more of this to source, and there's more of that to source. Right, and so, this is and this is for somebody who has multiple lenses, which most people won't have. You know, several right. large format lenses in the same focal length that they want to swap around. You know, that it's it's not for everybody. Um, it's just something I'm interested in. Right, right. No, and and uh, yeah, 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 and and that, that's certainly a way of working. And um, you know, I could do a pretty quick variant if somebody wanted to do that. Um, and uh, I would have to just figure out where the part is so so what really is going on here graham is that cam, cam now that we're building you know all three of us are making cameras and fixing up old cameras the cameras are multiplying faster than the lenses <laughs> so it, it's the right. sort of opposite world system where instead of having one camera and a bunch of lenses i've got a few lenses and a whole bunch of cameras <laughs> yeah yeah there is something to that there's something yeah. going on here yeah. and it's because i yeah. can you know, you and I and, and Ethan can make cameras, but we really haven't got there yet with making lenses. So I'm so working on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the book section. So um, lens building. Um, and uh, so I'll talk about that a little bit later on in our show. Recently, I have been swamped with orders. Uh, the Bronco Pan was supposed to alleviate a little bit of my um, actually manually assembling cameras, but it turned out to be really good advertising for all of the cameras that I do build and sell. And so I've been running about 10 printers around the clock for almost a week now, and the pieces are stacking up on my desk. I need to take a full day or two to assemble before I go to a wedding for a week. Anyway, um, I've been doing that. I haven't been doing so much uh, camera design, but I did get to work on a couple of interesting projects. Um, two of them are are a little secret because they're not my projects, uh, but I can talk about them a little bit, which are maybe kind of interesting to camera builders. Uh, the first one is not really camera related. Uh, I wrote a bunch of software for um, a radar detector that sees through walls uh, to be used by bomb squads and SWAT teams, which... Uh, it was a really weird and fun project. Um, okay, so so when you put this in uh, in our outline and you put bomb squad equipment, yeah. I was thinking bomb squad was like you know your club that you belong. We're the bomb squad. No, I have a friend. I didn't who realize it was the, the bomb, bomb squad. squad. <laughs> yeah, no, he he's got like a company. He makes um, these little sensors you stick to the sides of buildings uh, that see through walls, so they can uh, detect motion and basically. Um, you know, I'm not into making weapons. I won't build bombs or any of that uh, for, you know, personal and ethical reasons. But basically, those are used to light up to tell people when there's somebody moving. Um, and it his his product, which had nothing to do with me, has already saved a few lives. Uh, basically, like they light up and the SWAT team does not blow up the door um, while there's somebody on the other side, which is cool. And so okay. I've. I've been um, 
rewriting the software for this thing and it's it's been really interesting um it's very makery it's not very um camera related i don't know it sees through walls that sounds like you know the dream dream of back of the comic book uh, yeah x-ray glasses um -hmm. yeah so i mean people do use um multiple sensors like this or uh radar or or um microwave interferometry to actually generate, you know, point cloud images and 3D images through walls. Pretty, pretty crazy sci-fi stuff. Um, that is kind of beyond my programming abilities, but I, I've just sort of been writing the microcontroller routines for, you know, the thing to turn on and cycle through modes and change sensitivity levels and, you know, uh, so, do, so, do thing does. So can I surveil the mice in my dark room with this thing? No, but you could certainly tell if there's a mouse in your dark room. That's first. good enough. That's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> I would make a different version for that that would uh, send you a, a text message or a phone call. But I don't know that I would want to be Or release, release the cat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a microwave thing. It's not, uh, not something that I would run uh, all the time. Anyway, um, that was just kind of an interesting project that I wanted to mention because it's making things and I never thought I would work on bomb squad equipment. Um, the other thing that I also can't talk entirely about is uh, I had a surprise guest come yesterday. Who's a friend of mine from high school. Who's, um, uh, engineer, uh, and he noticed a phenomenon, um, that is super secret now. Uh, but I think he's the first person to notice that phenomenon, uh, maybe on earth. And so he's working on this physics paper and asked me if I could make, um, a high speed photo rig to photograph water droplets. Um, and so we've seen this a million times and it's not, it's not totally new and people have been doing this manually since like man Ray. Um, but yesterday we spent all day building a laser Arduino trigger that, um, basically a little droplet of a fluid passes through a laser beam uh, as it drops. It's taped to my wall right now. Uh, And then that beam is interrupted. It triggers and interrupted my Arduino. And then uh, the Arduino waits for however long it takes for the drop to uh, get to the platform that it's going to splash on. And then it triggers a flash and so we spent i was up till like two three in the morning i'm a little tired right now uh because once we got it going around 11 o'clock we could not help ourselves but spend another two or four hours dropping uh droplets onto a piece of acrylic and photographing them and taking pictures of coronas so that was really fun um it's what we are investigating is under wraps it's not my science project it's his science project i just got to build the camera trigger setup part of it which is really interesting and um you know when when mike publishes his results hopefully in something like nature um i'll make like a little you know uh, methods paper on this isn't he is uh plowing new new ground here right and advancing what people know what I am doing is just building this known machine, which is a laser trip trigger for a camera for high speed photography. Um, but I think, you know, where I am plowing new ground is I built one with parts I had on hand, which if you had to go out and buy, you could probably build for less than $10. Um, and it's pretty cool. And I think 
you know, once once Mike publishes his uh, phenomenological investigations in the world of physics and fluid dynamics, um, I'll put out the methods paper that sort of describes how it works and other people can use it to, um, you know, drop stuff and take pictures at the moment of impact. I think that'll be really fun. It sounds really fun. <clears throat> it also reminds me of a, of a local musician sculptor guy um, named Trimpen. And he's developed musical instruments that uh, basically work by uh, dropping a, uh, one drop at a time from a, a remote controlled dropper mm-hmm. uh, into um, tuned vessels of water with a microphone in it. So you can, he makes music with tuned water drop sounds. So multiple pitches and really intricate rhythms. So it's like listening to the rain and then you sort of can hear music in the rain and then you really can hear music in the rain. <laughs> it's very, very beautiful work. And That's amazing. I'm going to look that up. It sounds, it sounds like you're on the right track to make similar kinds of um, equipment. And that's really interesting stuff. Beautiful, beautiful music too. The other thing about Trimpin is his stuff, it's all computer controlled, but it's all analog sound. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's really unusual about him, which is, maybe why he got a MacArthur genius grant is because not only is it fascinating technically, but the music's beautiful too. So he, he's, he's a really good, great artist. Interesting. I don't think I'll make beautiful music. So we actually spent uh, the first half of the day going down uh, a rabbit hole that didn't wind up working out, which is I have a lot of um, brewery valve type of equipment around the shop. And so uh, my original thought was to use the laser trip trigger and manually drop droplets. Um, but because I had some solenoid, um, what do you say, spool valves, uh, they're little valves for controlling air pressure to pneumatic machines like um, mm-hmm. canning, canning lines is what I use them for. Um, and so we were trying to use one of those solenoid valves to release the droplet uh, quickly and then you know, close the valve. Um, but the solenoid valves were really sort of, they have a complex spindle inside that's very small for air pressure and the water was clogging up. It was not good. And then I have, um, as you know, I got every type of, uh, electromechanically controlled valve, either electromechanical or pneumatic. Um, and then I had a, so we, we moved to a fluid control valve. That was a servo valve, um, which was ultimately too slow. Uh, and we had to ditch that, you know, five, six hours into building these things. And what we did build was we were thinking of it less as dropping water to make music as like we built a really good bartender machine, uh, which we then scrapped. <laughs> it had uh, the power supply from uh, an old computer we ripped out and um, like basically a lawn sprinkler gardening valve type of valve and an Arduino. And it couldn't create a small enough droplet because the servo moved too slow. But, you know, we did make like one of those Burger King drink dispensing valve, uh, things. And we thought, Oh, we just need a couple of these and some alcohol and a couple of teas in the tubing. And we, we can have an automatic bartender and we almost scrapped the project and in favor, um, of in favor of, not making any scientific progress, just make a bartending machine, which <laughs> maybe we'll get there for fun, but uh, that that would be less productive. So, anyway. I, so I'm not really sure what Trimpen's um, device is that does his precise drop, but he's okay. from Germany originally, and 
when he programs one of his concerts, he actually factors in the speed of sound and the distance of the average sure. audience member. So, sure. so it's possible to get very precise with the right stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we almost before the manual droplet and the laser trigger worked, we almost wound up ripping a, uh, like a Z axis motor, a stepper motor out of a 3d printer with its Z axis feed screw. And like, we weren't sure where, but maybe like Walgreens sells syringes and we were going to use that to very precisely, uh, you know, drop one drop at a time. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's, 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 there's something out there somewhere that somebody, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, they say they're not camera related, but this somehow sounds like it could be. Um, I mean, there, there's, you know, I don't know, imagine, somehow introducing water drops into you know a lens path or something i mean it could be potentially something really interesting who knows well i'll, I'll show you some pics nick <laughs> and then we'll publish them in in uh you know a couple of months i think um the other thing i've been working on which also makes sound accidentally is um so a while back uh, a week and a half ago now i was working on this large format shutter and i would make one mechanism on a uh, it's it's like a series of stacked plates, and each plate has uh, interacting mechanism, kind of like a, a watch or you know a couple shutter. And I would draw a mechanism, I'd extrude it, and then I would add the next plate, I'd add the next mechanism, and then I would add the third mechanism and realize it inter interacted or interfered with the first. And so I'd have to go back to the first mechanism and move it around and change its geometry and then rebuild the second mechanism and then the third and then I go to add the fourth and now it interacts with the second and so there's a lot of this sort of back and forth and I thought man I need to learn to draw better by hand and kind of work these problems out quicker before SolidWorks and um so I, I'd like to talk to you guys about drawing but one one more making project that came out of that was um I went to go grab a pen to start drawing and I had this giant drawer of, you know, just free pens that I've collected over the years and almost every single one was dry. And so I got really annoyed and I, I texted my friend and I said, what is the best pen to buy? I'm just going to buy 10 of them on Amazon and be done with it. And the pen he suggested, I really hate. And so then I started watching pen reviews on YouTube <laughs> and uh, it's like, you know, I, I'm not exactly a pen fetishist, but like there's that world out there, which is camera fetishist yeah. adjacent for sure. I'm not uh -huh. quite into fountain pens yet, but um, I was down at the makerspace and uh, I was showing my friend Hugh some camera stuff and uh, some notebooks that I had made, like pocket journals. And then he was like, oh, check out this pen I got. And he showed me this like $100 Kickstarter pen that was made out of brass that had a bolt action. And... <laughs> Um, you know, I, I don't want a hundred dollar pen because I would go through $600 worth of pens in losses every year, uh, which is, you know, might be worth it. I'm probably spending more in design time at this point, designing my own pens, but I thought, man, that's a pretty good pen. I don't need everything to be like tactical. I don't need my pen to be a brass weapon. I just needed to write. But what I liked about it was that I have a lot of clicky pens, right? And I put them in my pocket and I always clip them on and like I move my leg and then I have stabbed myself in the leg. I have a couple of like little tattoos on my upper thigh uh, yeah, where, where the tip has gone in. But this thing had like a slide action 
uh, bolt, much like a like a bolt action rifle type of thing, um, like a clicky pen, but it can't be deployed in your pocket. And I thought, you know, okay, I don't need a hundred dollar uh, bolt action pen for tactical purposes, but I would like a a bolt action pen that won't get deployed in my pocket. And so, and so I started designing things in CAD, and you know, I put a couple of days. <laughs> in uh while printing these orders uh that i'm working my way through i have one printer that's a very low tolerance printer or high tolerance i don't know what you say a, a low accuracy printer that i don't use to fill orders and so it was good enough to prototype some pens on um and so i made one bolt action pen and it worked pretty well and then i used it for a couple of days and oh and and then i took that pen and i made it uh the right size for a Fisher Space Pen refill, a Pilot G2 refill, and a Parker G2 refill, which are three of the most common size refills, so you could stick anything in them. So I had three versions, and then I realized, huh, this version um, kind of doesn't work as well with my right hand as it does with my left. So I flipped that around, and I have a chiral set, so that's six pens that I had. And then I thought, like, oh, maybe I can refine this mechanism. And so I remade it a little bit different, and I moved the clip around. And then I had 12 pens. And then, I don't know, if you, do, do you guys know what the um, Fisher Space Pen is? Yeah, oh, I, I do. Yeah. And I know yeah, what the yeah. uh, Soviets did instead. Yes, yeah, they used pencils. <laughs> right. um, so, so the Fisher Space Pen um, is a pressurized ink refill. And there's a really popular one that didn't actually go to space. It's called the Bullet Pen. It's like a little uh, tube and it... it the, the pen pulls out of the tube and then turns around and pushes back into the tube. And it goes from being like a really, really short thing that fits in your pocket to a regular length pen. And I thought like, this is a good thing that I've had since Hanukkah 1994, but um, maybe I can design a pen like that. And so I did like six or seven iterations again while printing orders. And um, yeah, these things are pretty simple to design uh, and tweak. And so I came up with a really good like little 3D printed pocket pen to take everywhere. And then I've started drawing journals of different types of pens that I would like to make. And so my goal is to make like 15 styles of pens. And, um, you know, okay, this has kind of the same problem as the Bronco pen, which is that... Okay, uh, it... uh, uh, Nick, Nick, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, no. Should we stop talking about pens? No. <laughs> no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just, okay, I'll I just had to drop so, that in. Um, yeah. I, so I think that uh, I think that you you're just barely scratching the surface here, and that, oh, yeah. that, that you know pens that are exotic shape and function is uh, really un, un, unexplored territory. Yeah. So I would like to make really useful uh, pens. I did make a Zeppelin Bic pen for my friend Joe, which is. Uh, you know, it's funny. It makes me giggle, and in that way, it's functional. But um, it is the worst pen I've ever written with. Uh, but uh, does yeah. it float? Does it float? Well, probably. Yeah, I haven't tried it, but um, not on air. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I think the, the pens have some like interesting economic problems with them, which is that you know I can make a pen. It takes between one and two hours to print one pen. Um, it uses maybe 11 cents worth of materials and then it takes me 10 minutes to assemble it. And so, you know, uh, if I, if I take 10 minutes to assemble it, like for 15 or 20 bucks, you could just go out and buy like a metal pen and it will work fine. 
And so I, I'm not sure that I want to sell $20 uh, plastic pens. I don't know. I'm I'm looking for a Swiss Army pen, which has like the fork and the spoon and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's called the Swiss Army knife with a pen in it. I've had <laughs> one of those. Um, well, I'm thinking of pen with all the other stuff in it. But uh, yeah, uh, well, it depends how you look at it, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> a pen that had screwdrivers would be really handy. You know, not a Leatherman pen. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> I think this is. This is a really kind of cool thing because I can offer a lot of really interesting designs and um, like I can make them left-handed and right-handed and make a million variants uh, without a huge amount of work. And so long as I don't sell them, um, they're not very expensive. If you make them, we're talking like 11 cents worth of plastic and an hour's worth of work, two hours worth of work. And so, and, and 10 minutes to assemble your own pen is cool. But like, if I have to assemble a hundred in a day, that's, you know, it becomes expensive. And so what I was thinking is like, I don't think this is going to be marketed to the camera fetishists, but I got to figure out what the pen fetishist corner of the internet is. And I'm just going to make a huge package of like, you know, 15 pen files and I'll do the pen 15 project on Kickstarter where, you know, I'll run it like the Bronco pan, like give me 10 bucks and I will, you know, if I break this amount of money, I will send everybody the files to make, uh, you know, a hundred pens or whatever. Um, so, think, you know, yeah, that's I'm, look, I'm looking forward to getting a dozen assorted swizzle pens. <laughs> Give away your bar opening or whatever. Yeah. No, no, oh, no, 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 no. Weddings. You, you need a pen. Weddings. No, <laughs> you need a pen that you can take the uh, the the refill out of and use as a straw in all those places where they no longer give you a plastic straw. That's what you need. You mean this like is... in nightclub restrooms and that kind of place? This is yeah. No, I wasn't thinking that kind of a straw. <laughs> this is like a recipe for coronavirus. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. It is. Um, okay, so you know I yammered on. <laughs> which I think is interesting because of 3D printing and because of, you know, making use of the same business model as the Bronco pan. But like ultimately uh, the three of us much prefer writing with light than ink. And, and so this whole thing started with, I do prefer it, but I've certainly been down that uh, particular alley for quite a while. Oh yeah. Do you, are are you a pen fetishist? I love drawing with pens. Do you have a favorite pen? Uh, well, when I'm actually drawing, it's not by brand, but it's those those gel pens that cost too much and run out of ink too soon. Those are my favorite. Yeah. Rollerball gel pens. Mm. Yeah. So that's just a refill. And the shape of the pen matters. No, I, I love drawing with a pen. I like the ink. It's like it's like a film. It keeps you honest, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. <laughs> Um, I have a couple of models that take those rollerball gel inserts. It's the Pilot G2 insert. My mm. favorites right now are the Pilot V5 Precise RT, which is a liquid ink needlepoint, and mm. the Pentel Energel 0.7 metal tip. It's very, very smooth. <laughs> yeah, the hairs are standing up on the back of my neck now. <laughs> hey grammar are you a pen fetishist um i if you go back to to middle school and high school i was i was i was that kid who had like 12 pens i was that was the last time, time i heard about this was maybe 1994 yeah, right 
Yeah. Um, and um, well, this would have been early eighties for me, but um, I, you know, I, I'm just actually going to associate this back to uh, what I was talking about with the whole idea of I need more megapixels uh, or I yeah. need medium format or I need large format. I need to um, learn how to draw. <laughs> to learn how to draw. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but no, but I, I, I really, I, I like the idea of the, um, of the bespoke pen um, or the, uh, you know, the limited edition, you know, Hey, you know, it, it, it's almost a hipster kind of thing. Um, where'd you get that pen? Uh, you can't get it. I, 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 I got made it on it. Kickstarter. Here. <laughs> you know, right. Exactly. I backed it. I backed it six months ago. You're too late. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, it, it, uh, but okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step back and totally legitimize this. And that is, um, my, my Leica and my Voigtlander Bessa R3, whatever it is, um, those two things are essentially the same camera, but my Leica says, pick me up and take me out and take photos and, and take that and press that shutter button so you can feel the advancement. The smoothness so, of it. There, there are tools that tell you to use them. So if you can do that with a pen, I don't have any problem with it. It's yeah, the exact same. A lot more. <laughs> yeah, right, right. If you love your tools, you love to use your tools. Um, and, and, um, and I want to say I've noticed that when you, if you buy, buy a, a, a fancy pen body at a place like Office Max, and then you, you go back and you want to, you know, get the refills for it. They they never have them. And you always end up having to pay the extra money for the new pen. You know, it, it's there's some kind of thing where they manage to shuffle the, the different bodies and refills around so that you end up having to buy the new pen. Whereas this wouldn't happen with your your bespoke homemade pen because you'd always have the right body and you just buy right. refills. Because it's parametric modeling, um, mm -hmm. I am releasing the pens in every length for every refill. Although you can always use a shorter length and cut your refills down, but that could get messy depending upon how much of the empty tube into the ink you cut. But um, yeah, yeah, I you, think I could I think see like, neat. like an old style pipe rack, you know, with your pens lined mm. up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Enough about pens. How about drawing? Um, this is how. Oh, it hang on a second. Okay, hang on a second. I just pens. wanted to say on, yeah, more about pens <laughs> on Amazon. You can get, and G2s, uh, Pilot G2s actually are my pen of choice. So the fact that I have yep. a pen of choice means something, right? You can get six two-packs of uh, refills from Amazon for 1046 on Prime. So you can essentially get 12 pens for 1046, and then you can just print all the bodies and you can get them in Camerodactyl Pro, which is right. of course pink and blue. And you can get them in in Frozen Photon Pro, which is black and orange. Okay, um, let, me, let me ask you some pen nerd yeah. questions. Yeah, uh, Graham, do you know what uh, point size you like on the Pilot G2s? Um, 
I actually kind of like um, the bigger ones. Are, are they 0.5s? Yeah. They go, I mean, the standard ones, they go from like 0.38 all the way up to one. Uh, the standard ones are either 0.5s or 0.7s. Yeah. I like them wide. Um, I like them wide. I like the 0.5. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I like the 0.5 here, better than Here the is 7. a tip. If you like the Pilot uh, G2 in the 0.7, try uh-huh. the Pentel Energel. It's a little bit cheaper, and it is so much nicer. I, I, I went to Staples, right, because I, I hadn't bought a pen in 20 years, uh, uh-huh. and I just bought every single cheap gel pen there is and tried all the refills to figure it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, so I'm looking at this. I've had these, um, but aesthetically, they don't please me as much. Oh, the, as, the refills oh, are wait, oh, Hold on, there's a plastic one. There's there's a plastic one. Yeah, I know you're you're talking about the refills, yeah. but I'm I'm just saying. Um, oh yeah, I've had these. Yeah, I've had these. Um, yeah, I like the Pentels a lot. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do like body. the five rather than the seven. The seven has a little bit too much drag. I think the five rolls better. It's, no, 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 it's, it's the other it, way around. No. A lot depends on the paper you're using, but but uh, it, I think it's sort of fascinating that the, that the subtle differences in these tiny ball bearings with, you know, different fluids flowing through them are something that we can feel so precisely uh, with our fingers. Yeah. Yeah. And and you can get uh, a zero uh, a set of seven uh, Energel 0.7 refill uh, black for five ninety nine. So you can get twelve. Uh, for five ninety nine plus printing the case. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, advertisement done. Yeah. Can we talk about drawing, please? Because both uh-huh. of you are much better at drawing than me, um, and I would like to be better at it. And I guess like it's really stupid like to ask, how do you get better at drawing? Like practice, practice, practice. Um, no, no, it isn't a stupid question because practicing isn't really enough. Um, Here, I, here's what I'm gonna. Here, the um, I w- okay. So we haven't mentioned it yet, but uh, thank you very much for Sandeha, um, who was on last week. Uh, I was not able to be part of that um, uh, question and answer, but but uh, Nick and Sandeha were talking about drawing, and Nick made the comment that when he started, um, you know, working in metal, and it would take him a half an hour to do a curve. It freed him up to slow up for drawing. And I think that slowing slowing in your drawing is a huge factor yeah. for success. Yeah, it is. There, there's a, for some reason, maybe it's personality flaw. I, my hand wants to draw faster than my brain can, can compute right. visual, visual information. Uh, and what happens is you make inaccurate or ugly lines and then you keep, making more of them and it just spirals, you know, out of control. And this is a common problem. Or the other thing that happens is you draw what's in your head and that doesn't actually match the real thing you're trying to, to convey. Um, those two problems need to be solved. Um, the problem of slowing down so that your hand can keep up with your, your ability to observe is really, really helpful. Um, but, it, and also there's kind of a, a thing about relaxing too, because, if you're tense, you can't make uh, complicate, complex changing radius curves. But if you relax, you can. And there's body mechanics and all kinds of stuff. But mm-hmm. what the other side is observation. And I 
I really uh, can't. And yeah. before you get into that, I think that this is really important. Before you get into that, I uh, one of the things that you have to understand is there are two kinds of drawing. There's drawing from observation, and then there's drawing from the inspiration in your brain. And those are two pretty different tasks cognitively. They are, um, they are although they so, can be made to converge, and I think that's the goal. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, continue on. No, no, that's a good point. So so observing is you could be either attempting to observe what's in your head or you can be observing something on the table in front of you and drawing that. And I think that that thing, life drawing, is a really important starting point, which is drummed into artists, um, but usually not given much attention by engineers and architects. So there's a third source and the, so the third source is mathematics. So you can also derive a drawing from geometry and use mechanical drawing tools, whether they're a computer or the old fashioned physical ones that I use, you know, French curve and, and yeah. Such. And square, you know, the T square type principle, I use drafting machine, but it's basically just a, a really convenient version of a T square and triangle. Uh -huh. And, uh, but the point of all of this is that that kind of drawing where it's derived from the, the pure math is very useful for understanding physical structure. So if you're going to build something and you want all the dimensions to be, you know, sort of recorded on the drawing. But the thing is that you, what That's you're slow. drawing there is a bunch of data. You're not drawing what something looks like. You're not drawing what it feels like. You're not drawing all these other kinds of information, which you're going to learn a lot more about by doing life drawing where you don't mechanical aids. And you simply look at the thing that you're trying to record and try and understand it. And then that third thing where you're talking about trying to draw what's in your head, this is where you bring it all together is I think you need to spend enough time studying what's out in the world in order to refine the quality of the information stored in your head. <laughs> There's a feedback, wow. that, you know, where it's almost better to um, assume you don't know what you're trying to do because very often you don't and you might have like what you think is a clear idea but when you try to draw it you find out that there's a lot of missing parts and yes your idea is full of holes <laughs> yes mysterious so I, I, places <laughs> i feel like i'm very good at the second type which is mechanical drawing either on a computer or by hand with a t-square i am pretty bad at drawing the things around me and what I want to be able to do is draw the things in my head and I often find like if I can't draw something perfectly it's that I have not totally thought out the mechanism I don't know exactly what the shape should be it mm -hmm. becomes a squiggle or a blob and then like I've got to just iterate and iterate and iterate and think about that little area is that a latch is that a cam what is the shape of the mm -hmm. cam <laughs> yeah it's is really tough and I think like much like having to explain something to somebody else makes you understand it better. Having to draw it is kind of like having to know what it, what it looks like. And for, you know, mechanical systems, what it looks like is what it functions like. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. I so maybe you should practice so, number one to get better at number three. Which, okay. I don't well, know. wait, yeah. which one is number one and which one is number, number, one, number is one is drawing from life. Number right. two is, uh, mechanical drawing and right. number three is uh, drawing from your head yep okay yeah. so I'm I'm gonna 
probably throw in a monkey wrench to your goals. Um, and that is the idea that, you know, from a, from a point, from an engineering standpoint, um, what you're drawing is a two-dimensional object. You're taking something from three dimensions, you're putting it into two dimensions so that then it can be three dimensions again. And I have found that it is much better to stay in three dimensions and to work within the um yeah, the engineering platform right um yeah and yeah i and, feel and, that and way often a, yeah well, so so well, you're but are I you talking like are that, you talking that's about true because i don't have good hand drawing skills i i well but i don't i okay so I graham those, graham let's slow yeah. down a little are you talking about drawing from uh, in cad okay so drawing in yeah. cad is another sort of way to live this that is I'm sure full of advantages, but there's also there's also a problem I see, which is that the CAD makes things work, but it doesn't necessarily mean you really are experiencing the three dimensional thing the way you will when it's a real thing. So, but it's much closer than paper. It's right? much, like, and, and it's closer. Years, but, but wait, there's there's a reason I'm saying this because if you're forced to make that translation back and forth between two dimensional and three dimensional, and I mean really make it, in other words build something from a blueprint, you know, when you're forced to make that transition, it trains you to understand the relationships more, I think, with more precision than if a lot of that work is being done for you behind the scenes by software. Yeah. And so I, I think about a couple of things is one, like being able to draw things in my head is one impeded by my inability to draw things. And two, it's impeded by my inability to envision things, which is different, right? And I think I'm pretty good at envisioning uh, mechanical mechanisms, right? That's kind of what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. um, but I could be better, and I could certainly be better at being able to draw the things I envision. And, like, I, I know all of the rules for drawing two- and three-point perspectives and isometrics and orthographic projections. With a ruler, I can do it, but um, I, I don't bother doing it with a ruler because I'm faster in CAD for sure. If I'm going to break out some tools, but I would like to be wildly fast to be able to just, you know, single line, throw out a sketch of like this mechanism in this shape, this shape in this shape, and just like look at them and help me myself visualize better. And I'm, you know, no, I, I think, and I think forcing yourself to make this translation from a three dimensional to a two dimensional data uh, storage method and then back again is real. It's like calisthenics for that type of thinking. But I also want to push a little farther than that, which is what happens when you start forging. You are dealing with complex three-dimensional curved surfaces, so you know topology essentially. Mm -hmm. And when you when you're when you're when you start creating things like that, uh, it really gets much harder to visualize in terms of straight lines, which is, you know, geometry that we understand gets really complicated when you're talking about a complex curved surfaces. But if you, if you're actually holding it in your hand and shaping it, you do this, I do this thing where I turn an object that I'm forming constantly so that I can see it's silhouetted from a hundred or a thousand different angles, because the goal is to make a complex curved form that looks good from every direction. And that's, right. Forcing yourself to do that, you learn all these basic principles of design. They're just 
solving the problem teaches you the principles. It's, and so what you're talking about, about making something real three-dimensionally, I think the strongest way to make that link is to use your hands to make three-dimensional objects, whether it's carving or bending or just carpentry, all of those processes bring it all home to you in a, in a more tangible way that I think you can learn a lot from as opposed to just keeping it all, you know, in, uh, because the computer is always two dimensional. It's inside its brain. It knows the three dimensions, but it's presenting you a two dimensional image, which is a different experience. Well, but I mean, here's the thing is like you can double click and drag and look at it from all angles at once, which is very three dimensional. Yes. You, you can do all those things. And, and that that's a, uh, analogous to what I'm talking about. I think, though, that when you when you take it to an analog level, there's other stuff that you learn. Um, I do. I think there's kinetic relationships to space and shape and form and texture that are also important that, uh, you know, are left out of it. Um, you have to use your imagination always for all these processes. And I guess you can be imagining that when you're uh, staring at your screen. But I, I still think the actual physical making is a big help. And, that, and that's what life drawing amounts to. It's you're forcing your brain to do that computing and it learns, it gets better at it. Maybe I should not have worked on uh, pens and drawing, but I should have just been spending the last two weeks thinking about how to imagine better. No, you should be drawing, <laughs> drawing from life, draw from life. I think that's a really yeah. useful way to bring all this together. Yeah just do um what, what i have a bunch of things... <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. Worth so doing. um one of the things this is this is one of the things that i do as as a profession um when, when i'm teaching graphic design um y this is what i hear all the time but i can't draw that's as good as i can draw you know i'm asking them to 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 draw out a you know, magazine layout or something like that. And they want to put for the picture, they want to put a rectangle with a with an X through it to indicate picture. And I say, well, how about if you show what the picture is so that we can get an idea of what's going to go there because that's going to affect the visual balance and visual weight of, of that portion of, of the layout. And I, I'm constantly getting the, but I can't draw. And I have to step back and tell them that, well, that's a skill that you need because you are a visual communicator uh, as a graphic designer or web designer. Um, and, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I also talk about in this situation, because this is something that is... I think very important is that you need to draw the things that everybody who looks at them can assess as to their, um, uh, their accuracy. So in other words, you need to draw humans um, and you need to draw hands. You need to draw your own hand, um, draw your own hand 500, a thousand times uh, in different um, formats. And the reason for that is then once you've gotten the idea of what the parts of the hand are, you can then start drawing it in gestures that you're not looking at. Um, 
but it has to start with the observation and it has to be something that everyone who looks at it can assess whether it is accurate or not. And part of part of the deal is that um, my program, I teach in a community college. So my program is an open program, meaning that there you, you don't have to pass a um, uh, an application and portfolio review process. You don't have to audition. Um, whereas at the uh, university level, I'm sending people off to programs where they're going to have to show their work in order to petition in, in order to audition into a program. Um, and so many of them will, you know, draw Pokemon or they'll draw a dragon or they'll draw, um, you know, whatever their anime or, uh, you know, comic book hero is of the time. And so what they're relying on is somebody else's interpretation and their accuracy for drawing someone else's interpretation of the world. And as opposed to doing their own interpretation of the world. And I can, I, I, you know, I can look at the dragon and I can say, well, your dragon, the wings are too short. And somebody else can come back and argue that, no, those are the right widths of, of or lengths of wings. And who's to tell? Uh, but if you do humans, you can say that your arms are not long enough or, your, or, or the um, or your head is too squat or the eyebrows are too, too, too high in the head or, or, or all of that type of stuff. That's the thing that you have to start with and you have to – I don't want to say I – don't, I don't want to use the word master. You have to be fluent in that in order to get to the imaginary level. So here's something that that I'm going to take that one step farther. What you're pointing out is that if you if you draw something that the most people's brains are very good at um, criticizing or, or very good at seeing a fine error, fine detail of error. Yeah. Right. Sure. But so but there's like a first step when you get to life drawing where you can make a pretty well proportioned head on a pretty well proportioned body and all of that. But the next level is to make that individual person's personality appear and that is a whole other level and when you get that in my experience it's this it's this kind of corny and spooky a feeling that you didn't do the drawing like the first few times I got a real likeness where you saw that individual person's face I felt like what who do that I didn't I don't remember drawing that like it just there's a there's a real interesting thing that happens you go to a part of your mind where the usual kind of, you know, uh, bossy ego part of your brain is just not there. It's just not watching. And you don't end up uh-huh. with much of a record of what happened afterward. And that's a little annoying because you want, you know, you want a formula that you can use to make it happen again. Um, but really, it's it's if you get lost enough in just trying to convey really subtle, specific stuff with this, you know, crude method of scratching on a piece of paper with some, you know, with yeah. some dirt, with some dirt. Um, you get to a place where you're not even that aware of what you're doing when it, it really flows. And that's interesting to me because um, I think that's a real thing. It sounds corny, but I, th- I think it's a real uh, yeah. a real state of mind you need to get to. So does that help you out a, a bit, Ethan, or does it just 
I mean, everything makes sense. We'll see. It doesn't necessarily make me any better at anything, but I will. I will keep going. Maybe I'll make some beautiful camera drawings soon. So far, I've made a lot of terrible ones. Do Do you know some of the basic tricks of how to sort of fool yourself into looking cl- more closely? Do you know the the uh, the old the old art? You know, gags like drawing the space between objects instead of the objects and all that. Yeah, stuff. or holding a yeah. pencil at arm's length. Like the techniques um, yeah, that, are things that the, I can study and learn. But yeah. but just like the ability to see and think about things in two dimensions, right? Closing one eye. I've thought about uh, 3D printing myself a camera lucida for doing some life drawings, but that it's a, it doesn't help me unless, you know, bring my imagination to life unless then I'm using the camera lucida to look at my uh, CAD drawings in SolidWorks and then translate them to a piece of paper, which at that point I got a printer. Um, so you know, really what I, I'm I talking think... about are little exercises that in themselves don't do much, but they mm-hmm. can, it's like a warming up before you do a, a physical event, like say you're, you know, an acrobat and it, the warm up stuff really does help or music. It's like music playing scales, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. It it can really help to give yourself these little tasks to kind of warm up to. And then I'll, I've already, I think, mentioned this on a podcast long ago, but I discovered a really crude method that is very helpful, which is if you're drawing on a pad of paper and you press hard with a nice ballpoint pen or something, you know, sturdy pencil, you create an impression on the next page. Uh, and one thing you can just do is, is draw your drawing, look at it, you know, experience what's wrong with it, flip the page. And now you have that drawing just as a uh, in sort of, you know, inscription into the paper and you can draw right on top of it and make little corrections and changes uh, you know, testing your arm or your hand against what you just did and improving it. And as you keep flipping deeper and deeper into the into the notebook, you can re- often refine a design or a drawing uh, and get it to really work um, in that iterative way. And that's, a, I think, a really useful uh, game to play, too. Mm, I like that. I will try doing some of that. Yeah, especially if you're working from your imagination, um, because very often that's just a matter of forcing yourself to look harder at, you know, whatever it is you're, you imagine, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, for sure. All right. Um, this is our section of what we've been doing lately. So, uh, Ethan, I'm guessing that you're, you, you're done with that. You've, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I think your... I, be, I beat that horse. Yeah. So, um, okay, so uh, a long time back on an episode that I believe I was not on, uh, Nick and Ethan came up with the uh, with the challenge of building a self-developing camera. So I, this week, um, uh, first of all, uh, all of my design and printing and, and development efforts have been going into the Kraken, so... Uh, I've not really been able to address this in a way that I would I would like to. Um, and I still haven't, but I did make some steps towards this. And that is I went out and bought a uh, an Instax knockoff camera um, there. Uh, do you guys have uh, Tuesday morning uh, stores around you? No, do I don't you, know what you're talking you guys, about. Yeah. OK, so there's a store in. um uh, in my area, Florida, at least, uh, I, I, I think they're all over the, this area, but it's, um, a kind of a closeout store. 
And uh, so they'll have a lot of things that, um, you know, that have been uh, clearanced out of some some other store and they're, you know, it's it's there. And um, one of the things that they had were a bunch of sharper image Instax clone cameras. And I had to do some research. I saw them a, uh, a couple of months ago. And then I did some research because it says, what kind of film does it take? Well, it takes 800 speed film. And I was thinking, but this is an instant camera. And what it, uh, because they didn't license anything from Fuji, it doesn't say anywhere on the packaging that it takes Instax, but that's what it takes. So, and it's not for, it's not 800 speed Instax because I don't think there is any 800 speed Instax. Isn't it all 600? I think it's 640, in fact, isn't it? Are you guys familiar with Instax at all? No, I never, yeah, used, I never have used it. So. Every time I use yeah. it, I'm like drinking at a wedding and I've just picked somebody else's Instax yeah. camera up. I don't right. look. But it's great. So, I love it. Whatever speed it is. I use a flash. <laughs> okay. Well, um, yeah, and it's got a built-in flash that flashes when... Uh, the big thing is that I wanted something with the rollers um, uh, because I didn't want to build the rollers and I didn't want to build the whole film um, uh, film transport mechanism, the, you know, the, all those little cards... Because uh, that was a, you know, it was too far out of my experience to to really examine how that works and to get it done within a reasonable uh, amount of time with the challenge, uh, which is coming up uh, April 1st. And um, so what I did um, was I ripped the lens off. And by lens, I am being very, very... Um, uh, I don't know, uh, very, very complimentary of the of the designers by calling that thing a lens. Um, but it was a, a two sided, uh, two element plastic lens. And uh, so I guess it's a petzable plastic lens if you really want to get down to it. Um, so I, I took that off. I took out the shutter mechanism um, and, you know, and I did it pretty, pretty ungently. I mean, it's it's destroyed. Um, and I put on a pinhole. And so I, think you mean I have enhanced. A I've enhanced it with a permanently pinhole. enhanced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it's, uh, so I've taken a series of pinholes and, and I'm, you know, kind of, kind of happy with the outcome. Although this index size is just so damn small. I am not happy with that part um i'm not really i have a an instax camera that i bought a couple of years ago and have um not um uh one of i've not used it very much um but um this so i do have a self-developing camera now um i am uh not satisfied uh, from the engineering on this um you know essentially i just ripped out a lens and put on a pinhole um i'm not you know it it meets the very very the very bare minimum of the um of the challenge um i don't i it, it's and it's not that i'm using instant film because i'm i'm fine with that as meeting the challenge it's just 
I haven't modified it enough. I haven't worked it enough. So I am going to do something else. And I don't know whether I'm going to put on a bunch of two by three um, Graflex um, lenses that would work on this. Like I have the, what is it? The 103 or is it the 101? That's just a two by three coverage. Um, and I'll, I'll put that maybe on this and, and work around and play with that and see what I can come up with. Um, but the problem is that once you put in the pack of film, that pack of film is kind of open and you would have to take it out in a dark bag and, and make some changes or shoot all 10 shots of that pack of film. So I'm, I'm in the development stage of that. Um, I, I've worked it. Um, other people have worked it a lot better than I have uh, so far. Um, and uh, but I'm 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 going down the path. Um, I'm just not very satisfied with with the distance I've gone. Um, but well, what the hell? I have something that's working. So uh, I just wanted to remind people about that. Um, and um ethan i know you're working are you uh get, able to give any time to the self-developing camera self-developing um, camera film holder yeah so I, i'm gonna get there i'm waiting on this big laser cutter to come online and so yeah. i've been building other pieces of that camera um uh-huh. the film holder is a working prototype um i have used it and it's good there's a couple things that i want to improve upon it but i'm also building other pieces of that camera, namely lenses and shutters and designing better bodies um, that, that, you know, it's, it's going to be like a dump all at once when the laser cutter comes online type of thing. Uh, But yeah, I think I can beat April 1st for sure. Okay. So actually listening to you has sort of clarified what I would be able to attempt by April 1st. I'm still not promising anything, but what it strikes me that I should do is just build the right size box for a fixed focus distance. Because the main purpose I have uh, with this big lens is just to take, you know, close up portraits. So I should just uh-huh. figure out what that distance is and build a fixed lens box camera for that distance uh, and, and set it up with a, a, you know, a manual shutter to shoot paper. And it'll just be this one trick pony, but it should do it quite well. And it should be something that's very simple to build. Um, Maybe I, have, Maybe have like a string with a knot or like exactly. a guide for somebody right. to hold it. Their a eye. bone for the person to bite onto and keep them at the right distance. Maybe a <laughs> or <horse> electrodes, <laughs> electrodes, and or if they, they if they break break the connection, that's when the electrodes fire. Well, and, or the, the, you can have the shots. Uh, you could have the chair that they sit in um, and the camera attached together, and maybe have restraints, you know, on the. Uh, Better yet, you could use my laser trip trigger and just point it at somebody's eye. Sure, they'll go blind, but as soon as their eye is in the right place, the flash would fire. There you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm all, I'm all for that. I think I'll just go with this, <laughs> the string. You know, the string sounds good. Yeah. Probably more reasonable. No, no. A stick so you can push them back. <laughs> Well, yeah, and you could also have the, the connect the, the chair and the camera and put wheels on both so that the person's always in focus, but the background could be, you know, constantly changed. Oh, you could spin them. You could spin them around the center that is the camera. 
Sure. It's like the, the opposite of astronaut training or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. We've solved it. So the, very, so the very simple minimal, minimal deal would be the place for me to, to, to attempt something. But it's, man, that's coming soon. We'll see. Okay, so uh, we're going to – I talked about a book that I had ordered a while back, and this is a book called Photographic Cameras and Accessories, How to Make Cameras, Dark Slides, Shutters, and Stands. And what it is is it's a reprint from 1901, and it is a compilation of – of articles that were from this magazine or newspaper or newsletter or something called work and uh, which was uh, published in England. Um, And this says it's edited by uh, Paul N. Hasluck, H-A-S-L-U-C-K, and who was the editor of work and building world and, um, and some other things. But this is, essentially a a compilation of magazine articles and one of the first things now i haven't gotten very far in fact actually i'm just done with the first chapter but the first chapter is photographic lenses and how to test them and it talks about uh making like a checkerboard pattern to check for um you know pin cushion distortion and all that type of stuff but it really is a pretty good uh primer on lenses and one of the things that it has a um, uh, it has as its uh, you know as a uh, as a figure as a drawing as a schematic is a petzable lens, and a petzable lens is essentially a two element lens. Um, no, it's a it's a three that, element lens. It's a three element lens. I'm looking at that and I see that is a three element lens now. So it's two uh, two lenses that are um, uh, two convex lenses that are both convex, convex on both sides, and then there's a uh, meniscus lens that sits right behind one of those. So it is a three-element lens. So forget what I was about to say, because I was just about to make one of these things, because I've got two elements that are like that. I don't have the third element. Oh, here we go. No, no, well, no. So no. the first element is a cemented doublet, usually, and okay, uh, you can get those for telescopes. I have a bunch of them, but you can make a periscope, which is uh, or periscope, which is just two meniscus lenses. Yeah. Here, um, okay, yeah, and so, so, uh, uh, so Graham, uh, yeah. that book sounds really like it's up my alley. I love that kind of old, old how uh-huh. to do it book. So, who did the reprint? Well, who, what publishing house? Did the uh, okay, reprint? yeah, the publishing house is. Oh, let me see, because it's on the side. Lindsay Publishers, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, Lindsay Publishers, and um it's uh i'll put the um a link to it um in uh the show notes 
And it's uh, Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, B-K-S dot com. And um, I got this through Abe Books, which is part of Amazon. And I, uh, you know, I pay four bucks with shipping, you know, something along those lines. Um, so uh, and the other book that I have that I have uh, I'm about the same distance in, which is how to build or excuse me, build your own view camera. And this is from the 80s by Burt West. And um, uh, and so I'm going through and uh, I kind of I kind of feel like I want to build a, a, a wood um, camera. And, but if, I got to say this thing is uh it, it starts off with a disclaimer that says you know it's information and uh it was not the purpose of this work to completely collect the existing knowledge in the field and it goes on it's about five paragraphs long of of disclaimer and then it says in bold if you don't agree to abide by the above stipulations you may return the book to the publisher for full refund i did they get sued on an earlier version of this book. Um, yeah, who know, knows? That sounds kind uh, of it, odd. Yeah, it was. It's very odd. And it's very it's kind of off putting. It's kind of uh, that's anyway. the 80s. You said everything from. Yeah, the 80s this, is book, Come on. Uh, this book is published <laughs> by Dog Star Publishing. There you and, go. And um, I think that they might be out of business, but it was um, uh, 95. I'm sorry. So I was off by a while. So it's 1995. And uh, but it does look to me like it's I mean, there's a whole chapter on bellows and I want to I want right. to do some bellows. So 1995 was just when everything that used to be private and patented and copyrighted was about to be given away to the whole world for free. <laughs> right. And they were they, I think they might have been feeling that slot, that slippery slope starting to move. And they were like trying to do something. The whole publishing industry was freaking out back then. Right. And um, the last chapter on this is um, about what is it? Scheinflug or whatever it is. The um, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but it, the German word for um, uh, multiple movements uh, for view cameras, you know. Um, well, the Scheinflug that, principle describes what happens when you make. Yes. Moves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, but there's actually a pretty, pretty interesting description of what happens with the film plane as you do some movements and the camera that they build is a monorail and i really want a field camera um so um if only i knew somebody who made them out of plastic um, so yeah so uh, i i'm liking the idea of a hybrid a lot which is basically you build the wooden rear standard just like a traditional field camera it's just a box with a you know with a, some sort of film back on you know connector on one side for ground glass and film and then the other side it, it the box also can be like the the container for your bellows or whatever your focusing mechanism is um but then i instead of having the elaborate folding front standard which is cool but it has limitations i kind of like the idea of you just stick a rail on there and have a simple rail front end which gives you that all that kind of agility of movements that you can get with a rail camera so it's a it's a hybrid of the two and i think especially when you get into bigger sizes it's a practical way to approach it yeah and uh yeah and i think that that might be something that i end up with um i kind of want to do it um from the point of view 
of um uh you know something that's that's light and more portable than my press camera uh which is heavy so you know well, um you, I do you, rem- find- you remember the oh. field camera that i made out of an old crown graphic i mean that followed that basic principle um yeah it's just right. i just kept a, bo- a box with bellows on one end and then a a detachable way to you know f- focus and change angle on the other end and it, it is very light and it's very um versatile uh probably more than it needs to be but i like how the big thing is how compact it is and also how easy it is to pack it you know that's what's wrong with a lot of rail cameras is that they're just there's no good way to move it without a giant special purpose suitcase you know <laughs> so yeah 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 so um so that's it uh, do you guys have any shout outs oh wait ethan you have a well, book. i got a book yeah um i accidentally made the world's worst printed and worst bound zine uh for fun i was making some notebooks for myself and um i was using my label printer to print out um like i have a ups label printer for shipping things to people um and it's a thermal printer and it prints these know kind of non-permanent um four by six stickers uh generally i just have you know name and address and the barcode for the postage i purpose uh printed that purchased um and i was using these labels to print covers for my notebooks just for my pocket and i thought hey i have thousands of pictures of all of these classic cameras from every angle from back in my buying and selling cameras days um, I'm going to make a zine out of them. And so I made these zines that are um, like 70 some odd, 60 some odd pages of um, stickers of classic cameras that are just glue bound. They're not meant to be like collector's items. They're meant to be used and ripped apart. And uh, yeah, it's like low quality stickers of classic cameras. I'm going to throw those up on my website uh, probably this week. Um, I only made 20 of them. I don't think it's like a big, you know, money-making thing, but it was a, a fun day um, a couple of weeks ago. I've just sort of been having them sit around. And, yeah, I made Camera Stickers by Cameradactyl, the zine. All right. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. I've seen some pictures of it. I'm uh, I'm looking forward. All right. Um, Nick, do you have a book? Nick? Are you with us? No, I do not have a book. Nor are you with us. Okay, so uh, Ethan, do you have an? Uh, do you have a shout out? Um, nope. Okay. Um. Uh, Nick, do you have shout outs? Just to repeat that, um, I really uh, was happy to meet a bunch of new people. And I guess a shout out is to the uh, Camera Obscura Club from Seattle area. And um, and I guess everyone should look for their local clubs because it's, uh, it's while it's wonderful to interact on the internet, it's also fun to uh, go out and do things in the, in the real world with your, your fellow objectives. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, uh, I am uh, going to shout out just Sandeha Lynch for, being a part of the last show um again i really enjoyed listening to that i was not part of it um but i'm really enjoying listening to that um i do want to say uh, i want to remind people that we have a giveaway 
and the giveaway is a um, uh, one of the uh, Frozen Photon Camera Company Krakens. Um, so you will. Uh, so I'll supply the body and a lens cone. You have to tell me what lens it is that you're going to use. You will have to supply a helical um, and a rangefinder if you want to use. Oh, and a lens and the rangefinder uh, if you want to use a rangefinder. If not, you can set it up as a zone focusing camera. They work uh, pretty well if you're if you're one of those people who does zone focusing. Uh, you want to go to our website, homemadecamera.com slash giveaway, homemadecamera.com slash giveaway. And uh, I will and you can enter there. Just enter once. Don't enter multiple times because that will disqualify you. Now, there I'm also giving away some of the Holga slit masks and I'm giving away five sets of those. So um, the form will allow you to choose either the slip masks or the uh, camera dactyl, or the camera dactyl. Ethan, I've I've made it now a camera dactyl kraken. It, I think it rolls <laughs> off the tongue a little bit better yeah. than the frozen photon kraken. Um, uh, the frozen photon kraken. Uh, so you can do either one off the same form. If you would like to enter for both, I am good with that. Just enter twice and make the other selection as you go. Um, I will need to, if you win the um, uh, the drawing, which will come up after the first, it will actually be our third anniversary show, which will be on April 7th. That's when we will announce it. Third anniversary show on April 7th is when we'll announce it. And the uh, you will need to, to tell me um, uh, if you're the winner, you're going to need to tell me what lens you're going to use. And uh, I'm soon going to have some lens guides up. So if you do not know what lens you want to use, use the lens TBD. And there's some instructions on that. And we can talk about what lens you're going to use um, later on if you're going to go out and buy, uh, go out and buy a lens for this camera. So um, also, uh, not too long after that, on April 16th, I will be releasing the 3D printing files for the Kraken. Uh, if you want to see images from the Kraken, go to Instagram and type in the hashtag Kraken camera, K-R-A-K-E-N camera. And uh, all is one word, uh, you know, how you do hashtags. And um, you'll see some examples of that. Um, so, um, uh, any other business you guys have? I, I can't think of anything other than uh, this crackendactyl thing that you're talking about. The crackendactyl? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm uh, really actually excited to try the camera you sent me. I think yeah. it's going to be a lot of fun. I really, I am getting more and more hooked on wide format and, and, uh, panorama. Yeah. It seems like, yeah. it seems like there. It was it was all the rage last year, but I think we've just scratched the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things um, I have come up with a single viewfinder for it. It is an adjustable adjustable viewfinder. Uh, it comes in two parts, and you slide them closer or further away depending on your lens. And um, it's something that's relatively easy to set up when you're setting up the focus uh, marks on your helical 
for this and I will show you how to do that. So you will have a viewfinder on that. So anything else, Ethan, anything else you want to want to mention before we head out? I'm good. Okay. Thanks, Robbie. Uh, Robbie Cribs from Soundtraps, Soundtrap Studios uh, composed the music and allows us to use it throughout the show. So thanks, Robbie. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Robbie.